Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of God to us. Amen. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, My name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline South. It's great to have you. Uh, I see some faces that I've not ever met before. I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, So here's, here's the thing about church. It's like we all have different stories of uh, good things that have happened if you've been connected to church more than five minutes and some painful things that have happened. And so we know that it's a mixed bag. And so if you're maybe recently returning to church after being out for a while, uh, or maybe you're just not really sure what you believe, you're trying to explore uh, some of the claims of Jesus and of Christianity, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, we want to we wanna make a space for you and any questions that you have as you wrestle, that's all all on limits, nothing is off limits, nothing's going to scare us. Even if we don't have all the answers, we'd love to wrestle and process with you. So really glad that you're here this morning. Um, hey, a couple of things as we jump in today. The first is by way of an announcement. Uh, we talked about this last week, if you were with us. We are starting a leadership development course. We're using that word leadership lightly. That's an overused word in our culture Uh, especially in church culture. But what we really mean is this is like a formations class. This is a way for you to be spiritually formed in uh, theological stuff, spiritual formation. There will be some leadership stuff. Uh, So I I don't want to belabor this because we've already announced it, but uh, there's a handful of spots left open. Our goal is to get 90 people. 
and we have just literally a handful of spots. 75 bucks per person. If you need financial assistance with that, let us know, and we'll, we'll do our best to see if we can help out with that. If you want to sign up, today's the very last day. D- ignore the date that's on there, February 13th. That's wrong. Today's the last date. You got to sign up by today uh, if you want to be a part of that. So go to the website there uh, on the bottom, and you can sign up today. I think we've got like maybe three or four spots left. So jump in if you want to. Sound good? Yeah, are you guys alive? Are y'all okay? Dude, snowstorm. I figured y'all would be stoked to be out of your houses, finally. Um, Okay, there we go. So here's what I wanna do as we transition. If you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out and go to Genesis. We're gonna be in Genesis 1 and in chapter 3. But before we get there, I I have kind of a long intro. I wanna explain why we're pressing pause on our Gospel of Mark series to uh, talk about something that's really unique. Uh, by the way, good news, we're not talking about politics today. So praise be to God. We're not talking about politics today. Uh, yeah, you can applaud. Was, was it that bad last week? Okay, that's fine. Um, so you can applaud or go back and listen to that. Apparently it was terrible. Uh, or uh, you can kind of not celebrate because today we're talking about authority and submission. So, you know, two steps forward, one step back. And here's why. Here's why we're doing it. Because um, there has been some significant shifts take place in our culture that we as a church have been really trying to grapple with and process and pray through. Here's what I mean. Let me point out just a few things. The first is that there's been some significant shifts in how uh, Christianity is perceived in the West and in the United States specifically. In in the 80s and in the 90s even, uh, we lived in what some have called a church-positive culture meaning that if you were someone who attended church regularly, that was seen as a good thing. That was seen as like, oh, you're an upstanding citizen. You go to church regularly. It was not seen in a negative light whatsoever. In the mid-90s to early 2000s, things shifted. They began to change, and we transitioned out of a church-positive culture where we were widely received by the surrounding culture into what people have called a church-neutral culture. Meaning, it's not necessarily good that you go to church, but it's also not bad either. Like, that's, you do you, and I'll do me, and if you want to believe that weird stuff, that's fine. Um, You can believe what you believe as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, right? This is a church-neutral context. But in the last decade, we've transitioned again into a church-negative context, What that means is now to be a follower of Jesus in the West is not to hold the moral high ground as seen in society, but actually it's to be the problem. That to be a Christian now uh, means that you believe things that most people find offensive and repressive and restrictive. You are now the problem if you're a follower of Jesus. What you believe is not just weird, it's wrong, it's immoral. How dare you tell people that they can't fill in the blank, right? Have you felt this? Have you felt the shift around us? Maybe that awkwardness with a coworker or a friend or a neighbor when they find out that you go to church. Imagine being a pastor, right? I, I, I try, like, I help lead a nonprofit. You know, it's like, no, there's no good answer to the question. You just gotta come out and say, I'm a Christian. I teach the Bible for a living, you know? Um, so this is the transition that's happened. It's been significant. The second transition that's happened is the pace of deformation the pace of deformation. And here's what I mean by that. What I mean is because you and I are so plugged into our iPhones and to social media and to whatever 24-7 political news cycle of your choice, echo chamber that you choose to listen to constantly, you and I are plugged into a constant drip of content and data that does actually shape and form the way that you think, 
your vision of the good life, and what you love. You and I, on a day-to-day basis, constantly are being trained and shaped either to be more like Jesus or be more like the world. There's no way around it. Spiritual formation is something everybody's into, not just Christians. You can just live in the lazy river of our culture and be spiritually formed to love things that God is going to say you shouldn't or to live in ways that God is going to say you shouldn't, or to have disordered desires and affections. Or you can live in a way where through community, through Scripture, through uh, the one another's of Scripture, as we kind of walk out God's heart for church, we can be transformed and actually shifted more into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. And so here's what we're realizing as a church, is that the pace of deformation is actually quite a bit faster than what we are doing as a church to see people formed in the way of Jesus. When it was a church positive or even a church neutral culture, you could kind of just have a Sunday gathering and have people loosely connected to community groups and good things would happen. But now we're actually realizing that people are being just absolutely formed left and right and loves are being disordered and their vision of the good life is being kind of hijacked by our world. So what do you do? How do we engage this? Well, as an as a eldership, it's another word for pastors, our pastorship or our eldership, uh, we got together and over the last year and a half, almost two years, we've been praying, we've been processing this, we've been seeking God's heart and his face for how do you do church in our culture? What do you do? What does it look like to actually uh, create healthy, sustainable ministry that isn't just putting on a show on Sundays, but is actually getting people discipled into the way of Jesus? How do you form people? These are the questions that we've been asking. We've been reading broadly. We've been trying to understand the cultural things that are at work in our world. And essentially where we came back to is like, we need to recover some of these ancient metaphors that Christians have adopted over time. Like uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us salt and light. We need to recover that. We need to become salt and light again. We need to be a city on a hill, as Jesus said. In a world of darkness and dysfunction and confusion, A city on a hill is powerful. We need to recover uh, this idea of being strangers and exiles in this world. That America is not our home. And her values are not always our values. And there's some that can be redeemed and there's some that are good. But man, we are citizens of a different kingdom and need to live in a very different way. So how do you form people in light of that? So, So here's one answer to that question as we've prayed and processed for almost two years about this. This isn't the answer. This isn't a silver bullet. This is one answer to take a step towards a healthier church. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start what's called counterformation modules, primarily happening in the context of our community groups connected to what we're doing here on Sundays. But these counterformation modules are our attempt to not just spend all of our time talking about the deforming forces at work in our world, but to talk about the formational things that we as Christians need to be leaning into. If you're not a follower of Jesus, just kind of observe and watch and be around. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is some of the stuff that we're going to be leaning into, okay? So let me give you the five deforming forces at work in our world. There's probably more. These are just the five that we've identified as a group of pastors. The first is the autonomous self. It's that idea that like, I'm my own person and you have no right to tell me no. And in fact, if you tell me no, you hate me. You know, you're disagreeing of my behavior equals you're an outright rejection of me as a person. The autonomous self is this idea that you can create your own identity. You can just kind of, you know, express yourself to the world. The world is your canvas and express yourself however you want to do it. 
Uh, the second deforming force is consumerism. By the way, all of these are not just out there. They're in us, right? They're in us. So consumerism, this is the idea that like we exist as a people to consume. That the, the height of pleasure is found in what you can purchase and what you can buy and what you can experience. The third deforming force is the loss of truth. What is truth anymore? Can you know truth? Can we identify it? These are the questions that our culture is asking. The fourth is a post-Christian sexual vision. That actually the, the world's ethic of sex is in some ways returning to what it was in the first century with some new changes. But the idea is, you know, sex is everything and also sex is nothing. Sex is everything, meaning it's the way that I identify myself in the world, but also it's nothing. You can sleep with whoever, whenever. It's not a big deal. It's just sex. The fifth one is identity in the modern world. How do we understand identity? What forms our identity and how do we identify ourselves in the world? So here are the five counterformation things that we're going to be leaning into, modules that we're going to be leaning into as a church over the next few years. The first, in response to the autonomous self, is we're going to spend some time as a church talking about the safety and beauty of authority. That's why I'm preaching the sermon I'm preaching today, is to just crack the lid and start the conversation of, is authority a good thing or is it bad? Should we submit to authority or should we not? The second one, consumerism, we're going to spend some time talking about stewardship. Christians have always been known to be generous. And we're going to spend some time as a church really leaning into how do we steward our bodies, our money, our sexuality, our very lives. The third one, the loss of truth, we're going to spend time talking about truth and love. Can you know truth? If so, how? How do you know truth? Once you know truth, how do you live in light of the truth that you know? Fourth, post-Christian sexual vision, we're going to spend some time talking about a Christian sexual vision. We actually believe that Jesus has good news to offer, not just in his life, death, and resurrection, but good news to offer in every sphere of our world, including our sexuality, in a world that's confused, in a world that's trying and scrambling to find pleasure in sex. We're actually losing pleasure. We're actually missing something. We think that Christianity has something good to offer with this sexual vision. And it's not something that we should be embarrassed of. It's something that we should own and celebrate. The fifth is in response to the identity in the modern world, it's learning what our identity is in Jesus and the living God. How do we find our identity as his people in the world? So here's what we're gonna do. Uh, We're gonna take, uh, basically starting in March, we have these booklets that our team have put together And these booklets have four trainings in them that in our community groups, we're going to be doing this. These four trainings on each. So we'll do four trainings on the safety and beauty of authority. And then inside of this booklet, there's also 40 days of liturgies that you as an individual or you with your family can walk out together. Scripture reading and prayers to pray and confession and assurances that you can walk yourself through. And the idea is we're trying to kind of wean ourselves off of the drip of culture for just a little bit and put ourselves underneath the fountain of the living God and his authority and his truth and just see what happens as he forms us over time. Again, this isn't everything. This isn't a silver bullet. There's more work to be done. There's more things that our elders are praying through and talking about, trying to figure out how do we, how do we actually not just push back the darkness out there, but the darkness in our own heart. Like if we're gonna be people who can love God, love people and push back darkness, we gotta push back the darkness in here, in our own chest, how do we do that? So this is one way. And I just want to invite you, man, if you're a part of this church, will you engage this with everything you have? Jump in to a community group. If you're not 
a part of a community group or you're loosely connected to one, this is gonna give you one month to get connected to a community group, to find one that fits for you and, and reach out to us. Our pastors, our team, we will bend over backwards to do whatever we can to help you, but we really think that this is going to be an important step for us as a church. So I wanna just invite you out of the lazy river of our culture into something intentional and formational. Does that sound good? Okay, so that's what you can expect coming up. Now, what I wanna do is pray so that we can dig into the word of God, just take a few minutes together to talk about the safety and beauty of God's authority. Father, thank you for what you're doing and thank you for the fact that we don't, we don't really have to freak out by what's happening in our world because you're not in heaven wringing your hands. You're not panicked. You're not freaking out. You've always been driving this world towards your purposes. And so for all the ways that uh, there's incongruency in our lives as Christians versus your hope for us, we pray that you would close that gap by your grace. Pray that we would look more like you in the world where we need to be formed. We pray that you would. And I, I specifically pray for my friends that are here that they, they're not sure what they think about any of this. They're not really sure what they believe or they have questions or they have doubts. God, thank you for them. Would you meet them today? Would you meet them with your mercy and with your love? Any weird ideas that we have about you, we pray that you would blow those ideas up and replace it with what's true. So help us as we open up your word. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Sometime in the year 1820, Thomas Jefferson went to his bookshelf. He reached up, he pulled a Bible down, and he had scissors and some glue. And he literally began to take sections of the Gospels and cut out everything that he found offensive and paste in other parts that he actually thought was okay. This is crazy to think about. He, he was repulsed by some of the ideas laid out in the Gospels, in his culture, some of the big objections at the time were around things like the supernatural or miracles or the resurrection. It, it was kind of the Enlightenment era. Scientific reason is, is on the rise. So this idea that like we're scientific beings, we're scientific-minded creatures, we know more than our ancestors did. Miracles don't happen. Like there's a scientific explanation for all of that. The resurrection, that's just metaphor. And so he began to just cut out all the things that he personally could not swallow and built together his own version of what later became known the Jefferson Bible. But he called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what he said about it. He said, I've performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. This, the result is an octavo of 46 pages of pure and unsophisticated religion. Thomas Jefferson felt like he could identify what the diamonds were and what the dunghill was. Like he actually felt like he had the authority to approach scripture and distinguish between those two. So he removed what he felt like were the dunghill and kept what he felt like was diamonds. Now here's why I tell you that story. Because not much has changed in our culture today, right? Even in the church, not much has changed. You might read that or hear that story and go, my gosh, what an arrogant, arrogant thing to do. Like taking a Bible and cutting it out and making your own version. That is a bold move, Thomas Jefferson. Who would do such a thing? But the reality is that you and I, in our own various ways, tend to either gravitate towards the parts of Scripture that we like and avoid the parts that we don't, or redefine 
what certain things say or mean to not say or mean what we think it is, or we cut them out altogether. You and I are, we have the tendency to do the exact same thing as Jefferson. In other words, it's a struggle with authority. At the end of the day, there's a question mark in our hearts. What happens if God says something that disagrees with what I value? What if God says no on something I want to say yes to? What if I want to say no and he says yes? What do I do when there's a conflict of interest, if you will, between what God is asking of us and what I personally feel like I want to do? Who has the authority? And can we trust it? Can we trust God's authority? Or is he just out to rob our world of life and pleasure and meaning and significance? Like if you actually do what scripture tells you to do, if you actually live the way that Jesus invites us to live, will that lead to a better life or will it lead to a life that's joyless and weak and lacks all the things that our world would say you need for pleasure and for meaning? Those are the questions that we're asking today. Now there's been a lie that's been told and that lie, though it, it's finding new and new ways to express itself, actually goes back to almost the very, very beginning of Scripture. So before we look at that lie, I wanted to show you God's original at- intention behind his authority in our world. Genesis chapter 1, let's jump in. Genesis 1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing I want you to see is God's authority in the beginning. Now, it starts out really vague. In the beginning, God. And, and if you read it in Hebrew, it's even more vague. It's in the beginning, the God. And you're like, what does that mean? And who is it describing? And, and, and all we know is that this God is the supreme authority. And later, it becomes even more explicit and more clear who this God is and what this God is like. But from the very first verse that jumps off the page of your Bibles, it's establishing this idea that because of who he is and because of what he's done in creation, God is God. Now, that sounds basic, but that's significant. That means that he's the creator, not the created. That he's the author, not the character that he's the initiator, not the reactor. That means that God is the potter and not the clay. And when you establish that God is the author and the creator and the initiator and the potter, then suddenly that puts you and I into a little bit of perspective, doesn't it? Because if that's true of him, then all of a sudden you and I become the creature, not the creator. You and I become the character, not the author. You and I become the clay, not the potter. God, from the very first verse of Scripture, is established as the authority because he's God and because he creates all things. That gives him a say in how we live because we are the creature, not the created. Now, as I say that, that's not necessarily a good thing, that God is the authoritative supreme being. Like, in itself, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a good thing. And what I mean by that is this. What if this God and his exercise of authority was actually authoritarian. What if this God, in his very essence, his very like, core part of who he is, is primarily best described as angry and vindictive? What if the world that he was creating was better suited to be like a genocidal concentration camp than a good world? Then we'd be up a creek. Because you, ha- you would have no supreme court of authority to appeal to, no higher judge, no higher law. Like if this God is a vindictive, cruel, jealous, capricious God, there's nothing that we could do because we're the creatures, not the creator. Thankfully, 
the story doesn't stop there. The second thing I want you to see is God's authority and his benevolence. So yes, he is the authority, but as the first chapter and the second chapter of Genesis unfold, it starts to put incredible flesh on the skeleton, this idea of God being the authority. What's interesting in scriptures you read through from start to finish is that primarily the Bible does not want you to think of God as God, generic God, or as creator, even though he does create, or even as ruler, even though he does rule. Do you know the primary way that the Bible wants you to think of God? Father. That is the primary way that God is revealed to us in Scripture, is as a father. And even more than that, what's so fascinating in Genesis is there's a set of refrains that show up again and again and again that paint a picture of who this God is. The first one is this. Over and over you read the phrase, and it was good, and it was good. And it was good. And it's referencing God creating. And the thing that he does is he creates and then he takes a step back and he looks at what he made and he says, that was good. And then he makes humans and he says, it was very good. In other words, all the other ancient Near Eastern creation myths that existed at the time were describing the creation of the world out of violence. Like uh, there's, a, there's a story from Babylon, the Babylonian creation narrative called the Enuma Elish. And that whole narrative is uh, the created order was birthed out of violence and out of war between the gods and all these terrible things happened and that's how humans were made. And you can go to the Egyptian creation narratives, you can go to any other ancient Near Eastern narrative and find that violence and this vindictiveness and even a jealousy was at the core of why creation happened. Not so with God. He's not creating because he lacked. He's not creating because of violence. He's creating out of his inherent goodness. That's one of the refrains. The second refrain that you see in Genesis chapter one is this refrain, I have given, I have given. I have given. It's said again and again. The, the, the way it paints God is to be generous and benevolent, actually using his authority to bless, using what he has to give away. Like, listen to this in Genesis chapter 1. Listen to all that God does, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So he's creating them after their likeness, his likeness rather, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So what do you learn about God in just the first chapter? Well, yeah, he's the authority. He's the supreme one. There's no one that stands above him or behind him, controlling him as a puppet. He is the ultimate supreme God, and yet he uses his authority to bless. He creates humanity in his image, sharing his very rule over this world with you and I. He gives them a world of yeses. He gives them authority over the earth and breath and presence and community and all that is good and all that is beautiful. He is just radically, radically generous. This is what you see with God's authority and his benevolence. In fact, by the end of chapter two, God has created a world of yeses for Adam and Eve. 
They have a world of yeses. There's only one no. And the one no is a no to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there's debate among some circles of Christians about, was that a real tree with real fruit? And if so, what type of tree, you know, what type of fruit was it? And I'm not saying that those questions don't matter. I think they do matter, but that's missing the point entirely. The point is that that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, represents something. It represents a way of living in the world of rejecting God's authority and you becoming your own authority. To reach out and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to transgress your creatureliness and try to become something that you should not be. And actually you saying, God, you have no right to define good and evil. I'm going to define good and evil for myself. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you choose to live a life of rejection to God's authority, God knows, because he's the creator, that life won't work well that way. When you take the God that we were created for, the God we were created to live with, the God that shapes the way that we engage one another, out of the picture, things don't lead to more life. They actually lead to death. And so God says, hey, if you eat of that tree, if you try to transgress your creatureliness, what's gonna happen is that it's not gonna lead you to life, it'll lead you to death. So the only no that God gave his his people was what? It was a no to death. Everything else is yes. Yes to life. Yes to pleasure, yes to joy, yes to thriving and flourishing, no to death. And so with that in mind, I want you to think about what's happening with this very first attack and where the location of this attack comes in Genesis chapter 3, because it's going to go to the heart of the authority of God. This is so interesting that actually the very first attack is going to be an attack on the authority of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let's look at it together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now we're introduced to a new character. Instead of this benevolent, amazing, beautiful, generous God, you've got this crafty beast, this serpent, that obviously is trying to not give, not bless, but take and rob. Goes on and says this. He said to the woman, notice what he says, did God actually say? Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Here's the third thing I want you to see, and that's God's authority and the lie. And this lie that we're gonna explore just a few minutes together has been repackaged and retold to humanity again and again and again. And it's at the core of it, it's actually about the authority of God. Did God actually say? Now, what has God said up to this point? It is good, it is good, it is good. God has been shouting about, I have given you these things and I'm blessing you and I want you to rule over the the earth and I've gave you a world of yeses. That's all that God has said up to this point. And yet the enemy comes in and immediately starts to twist it and, and say, did God actually say? That question is the most significant question that you and I could grapple with, especially in our cultural moment. So there's, there's one lie that's told, but it's gonna be put into four different packages, four different distortions. Let, let's look at the first distortion of God's authority. Genesis 3 verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The first distortion is God's authority is restrictive and burdensome. God's authority is restrictive and burdensome. Did you notice the phrase that the enemy used? 
You, did he really say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? He's almost making it sound like God is this vindictive, stingy, cruel God. Like, how dare God create a world of no's for you? Why would he create a world of no's and say, you can't do this and you can't do this? And, and this is how he paints God out to be. It's a distortion that says, oh yeah, his authority, that's actually really restrictive and it's a heavy burden that you as humans should not have to, you shouldn't have to live underneath. Second distortion, verse two. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she corrects him. Notice his response, verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Distortion number two is that God's authority does not apply to us. Well, God said that, but he didn't mean that. He said you wouldn't die, but actually the opposite. You'll be fine. You'll live. This, continue, this lie continues to be told again and again and again, that what God said, he did not mean. And here's what's so crazy, and, and I, I think you know this, but just eyes wide open to be aware. Friends, you can find any book, any podcast, any blog, any scholar, any group of people to tell you that what God said he didn't actually say. That is the heart of deconstruction, actually. Well, he said this, but let me give you 12 reasons why actually that's not at all what he said. And he didn't mean it. In fact, you can transgress his authority and become your own and be just fine. This is the lie. Third lie, third distortion, verse five. He goes on to say this, for God knows, notice what he says, he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The third distortion is that God's authority is limiting your potential. Oh, he, he knows that when you do that, you're going to become like him. And he doesn't want you to be like him, right? He's a fr- he actually wants to keep you small so that he can be big. Here's the problem, friends. They were already like God in all the right, good, appropriate ways. And so this lie is coming in, trying to get him to believe that somehow God is holding out on me. He's limiting my potential that, that maybe to, to have full potential as a person, I've got to transgress him. And that leads to the fourth and final distortion as the lie begins to take root. Look at verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I hate that, by the way, that he's just standing there. It's like picking his belly button or something. What are you doing, dude? This whole conversation's unfolding, and he's like, la, 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 la. Like, bro, help out, dude. Reminder of what's real. Do something. Like, nothing. He just stands there, right? Here's the fourth distortion. The good life is found outside of submission to God's authority. So she begins to look at the tree. Adam's standing there, apparently looking at the tree, Man, maybe he's right. If we transgress God, we can find a thriving, flourishing way to live. Real freedom is found by rebelling. Real joy is found by removing ourselves from his authority. Now, friends, for time's sake, I don't have all the time to go into the effects of what happens as they rebel. They, they rebel, they take the fruit, they eat, and you know the story. The story does not end well, but I want you to notice the, the tragic irony of how things do end. And breaking free from God's benevolent authority, they actually don't find more freedom. What do they find? 
they find slavery. Instead of getting to rule over God's good creation, remember they were co-rulers. God created them in his image to rule over and have dominion over the world. And yet when they sin, they take the keys of the kingdom, as it were, and they hand it over to this enemy. And then later in scripture, he is called the ruler of this world. So they go from being rulers to being slaves and he becomes the ruler. What's so tragic about their decision to, to rebel is it doesn't result in more freedom, but it, re, it actually does result in more death and more dysfunction and more decay and more brokenness. All the good pleasures that God had created for us to enjoy suddenly become diminished and fraught with dangers. Things like work get mixed with futility. Things like marriage gets mixed with conflict. Things like singleness gets mixed with loneliness and isolation. Things like wine get mixed with addictions. Sex gets mixed with shame. All of these good gifts that God had created to be enjoyed in appropriate, right, good ways just get distorted and get broken. We don't find more freedom when we reject God. We find more slavery. We don't find more joy. We don't find more safety. We don't find more beauty. We find ugliness and we find brokenness. And here's the most tragic irony of all is that they actually didn't break free from God's good authority. They didn't break free from his authority. He's still God and they're still not. But what they did was remove themselves underneath the blessings and the benefits and the safety of his authority. And now as they've lived in opposition to him, they're only experiencing the consequences and the condemnations of that. That is the tragedy of the fall. Now, friends, we could take all day, but we don't have all day to just talk about how that same lie packaged in those four distortions has been retold and retold and retold to you and I today. And it's subtle. And it sounds at times like really sexy, cute little statements like this. There's a place I used to frequent that had this art piece hanging in the bathroom. And I I just thought, "This, this is our cultural moment right here. The thing that makes you happy, yes, do that. Like literally, the thing that makes me happy, because there are a lot of things that in the moment will make me temporarily happy that will ruin my wife and my children's lives. There are some things that I could do right now that would actually long-term be devastating for my own soul. This is the way that our world is working. It's, hey man, you do you. Whatever makes you happy, whatever brings you pleasure, whatever brings you joy, just go for it. God is out to get you. He is out to repress you and restrict you. He does not want your good. His authority, it's vindictive. It's not safe. It's not beautiful. Or we're told this, that having unlimited freedom and avoiding all restrictions produces more meaning. As somehow like the more we can fill up our bucket called freedom, the more our other bucket called meaning and significance gets filled up. That's not the way it works. You can't just have unlimited freedom and also have meaning because meaning isn't built solely on freedoms. How do we have significance and meaning as a culture? How do we actually experience the good life? How do we do it? Or we'll have people say this, well, people who tell me no don't really love me. As if somehow telling somebody no is the same as rejecting them as a human person. And so what's happened is we've created a culture of people, and you and I are a part of it, where we can't be told no, we get to do whatever we want, and we can kind of just pursue our own freedom and our own joy and our own pleasure. And I just want to pause and ask, is that working? Like, are we more free as a people, truly? 
do we have more meaning? We've killed God, as it were. Are we better for it or are we not? And I think that what's happening in our society is we're grappling with the fact that if we have killed God, then what the heck does any of this even matter anyway? There's a level of anxiety. There's a level of depression. There's a level of meaningless, meaninglessness that is on the rise right now that is hard to grapple with. And I just want to say that it's because we miss God. That's why. We miss his authority. And that leads me to the last thing I want you to see, which is God's authority and redemption. The beautiful story of Scripture is that God could have used his authority to be like, well, screw this, for lack of a better way to say it. I'm starting over, and I'll just trash that and start over on some other planet. But instead, what he does is again and again and again, God uses his good authority to intervene and to rescue and to redeem. God sends prophet after prophet after prophet. God sends his law. God sends his spoken word. And God is constantly inviting his people back to himself. Even when his people rebel and sin, he allows them to experience the consequences of life apart from God's authority to wake them up and to bring them back. And eventually the story culminates when God sends himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus comes to Uh, twofold, both show us what it is to really be a human being submitted to the authority of God, to do that in ways that we were incapable of doing it and unable to do it, but also to, to die on a cross and rise again to redeem us from this broken world, to show us a new way to live. What I love about Jesus is though he was God, he actually chose to limit himself which is breathtaking. Though he was the authoritative one, he chose to restrict himself in some ways. Like we read this in the New Testament, that though he was rich, he became poor for our sake so that we could become rich by his poverty. We read that though he was God in humility, he he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he actually took on the form of a servant and took on our humanity, and he lived perfectly as this fully submitted human being to the Father in ways that you and I didn't. And one of the most beautiful, powerful pictures of Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to show you this in Mark 14. In one sense, the Bible is a story with two significant garden scenes. The first is Adam in his garden called Eden, where he said no to God's authority and yes to his. And the second is the second Adam, Jesus, in his garden called Gethsemane. Now notice what happens. Mark 14, 35. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. You're the authority. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In other words, what he does is he says, here's what I want, but I'm taking what I want and I'm submitting it to what you want. Not what I want, but I'm relinquishing my whole self even my desire to not die on a cross, I'm relinquishing that to you. So whatever it is that you want is what I want more. That is the perfect display of maturity. And where Adam said, not what you want, but what I want. The second Adam, Jesus says, not what I want, but what you want. In Adam's garden, sin and dysfunction were unleashed in the world because of his rebellion. In Jesus' garden of Gethsemane, redemption is unleashed on our world because of his obedience. 
He dies on a cross in our place. He rises again from the dead to forgive us and teach us a new way to live. And if we had time, we could go through the whole scripture, the whole New Testament, showing how all these commands, the one another commands of scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, it's just Jesus trying to teach us how to be human again. It's just Jesus trying to teach us what full submission to God's safe and beautiful authority looks like. So where do we go from here? I just wanna invite you as a church to recover the safety and beauty of God's authority. Like when there's a conflict between what you want or desire or feel you need versus what God says, please, please, by the grace of God, will we over time become people that say, not what I want, but what you want? Would we relinquish ourselves to him? When we find things in scripture that are hard, let's not assume they're wrong. Let's assume that we're wrong and then adjust ourselves to what the truth of scripture says, right? Let's engage community in such a way that we learn how to submit to one another out of love, right? In marriage, you do this. In singleness, you do this. In the context of community, you do this. Friends, can I just say, if you don't have anybody in your life that can tell you no, you are not someone under authority at all. You can talk all day about how you love authority, how you're underneath God's authority, but if you don't have anyone in your life that can tell you no and you listen and you do what they say, then you're not actually underneath anybody's authority. You're rogue and you're doing whatever it is that you want to do. Can we recover how safe and good and beautiful it is when God tells us no when we need it and when he tells us yes and when he says do this or do this or don't do this or don't? Let's recover his authority together. We're going to learn more about what this looks like as we release this module. But here's my prayer for you and I. My prayer is that you and I would say yes to the Father's authority at every turn. That we would be a church that says yes to the Father's vision for our lives. That we would say yes to his sexual parameters. That we would say yes to his will for your marriage and my marriage or your singleness. That we would say yes towards his call to generosity. Yes towards his command to love and forgive our enemies. Yes, to live in a way that is salt and light in a world that is dark. That we would say yes to every single claim that he makes on our lives because he is not out to destroy you. He is out to save you and heal you and redeem you.